Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. We've been off for a month as we have our summer hiatus. We want to make sure our staffers get the rest they deserve for all the hard work they do. And I'm here today with Aaron Gibson-Brunshot, who is our friend from Calgary. Aaron, how is your summer going? It's going good. We're on the eve of Stampede, so that always marks like the beginning of summer for us in Calgary, I think. Has it snowed recently? You know, it hasn't. We did get some really wild temperature drops over the weekend, despite it being, you know, the camping weekend that everybody is out in their tents. And it, it really kind of dropped off in Calgary yesterday. It was mm. quite uh, miserable by the end of the day. Oh, yeah. How about for you guys? Well, How's the weather and stuff there? Oh, well, I've, I was in Spain for two weeks, so I was hot. Mm -hmm. It was super hot in Spain. It turns out they have siestas for a reason. I had a conference in Barcelona, and so my wife and I went to Spain for a week and a half of tourism before uh, for the conference. So I drove around, all around southern Spain, and it was above 40 degrees for a couple of key days there. And then when we got to Barcelona, it wasn't so hot, but it was very, very humid. So I actually sweated more in Barcelona, I think. Mm. But the food was phenomenal. The art was amazing. We did get kind of tired of seeing cathedrals. And castles. Uh, and we, I definitely enjoyed seeing the castles. Well, we got in a, in, into a bunch of them. There, there were royal palaces all over the place. So we got into a couple of those. And then the drive from Granada to Barcelona, we saw a, lot, uh, a number of strategically placed old castles, which was very cool. We also saw a lot of olive groves and a lot of solar power farms. And of course, you're in Spain. So there's windmills because you're in Don Quixote country. And so, of course, we got... Some Don Quixote swag, some, some figurines and magnets. And I was amused to see a number of stores with the name Dulcinea because if you have if you have if you haven't seen Man of La Mancha, Man of La Mancha's love interest is a woman by the name of Dulcinea, and the song is burned into my head from the production I watched in college when one of my friends was actually the Don Quixote character. Hmm. Uh, That's awesome. So it was it was a really nice trip. The Spaniards were very friendly to us. I met some other people who were who were wandering around the country from other places, and they were very friendly. I guess the one oversight of my trip was I, and one my one regret is I didn't I didn't know where the Spanish Civil War history stuff was, and I certainly didn't find it accidentally. I don't know how much they cover their old history. That there was a lot of history of prior to that, but right. not a whole lot of that moment in time, at least not in the places that we were at. So I'll have to figure that one I'll out. Go back. Well, I, I do want to go back. I want to do the northern part of Spain. I did Catalonia. I need to do the Basque country to to check all of my separatist boxes. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, it was it was just a great time. Did you get to Valencia on this trip? Ah, Valencia. 
Yes, Valencia. We went to Valencia. That's mm, one of our stops. Great things about that place. We we didn't really explore much because it was just at the end of a long day's drive. But we actually stayed in a hot in a bed and breakfast or hacienda that was like two miles from the beach, but buried in in a rural area. Is like our all the neighbors were farms, but it was a lovely place. Our our hotel room actually had the name, you know, it had a name as opposed to a room number on it, which was kind of mm. special. So uh, we we had a really good time. Food at that that, that bread and breakfast slash hotel was fan, phenomenal. So we didn't really voyage far from there. We were just exhausted. They had a nice pool, huge mm. bathtub. So sounds great. Enough of my wonderful experience in Calgary. Have you been getting much of the smoke from the fires? You know, it's been kind of hit and miss. I think that it. It seemed a little bit smoky, actually, before the weather turned weird yesterday. But the last couple of weeks, it hasn't been that bad. Uh, I don't think it's been as bad here as it might have been in Ontario. You you must be getting, well, you probably have heard that you're getting a lot of smoke there. How's it today for smoke? There was more smoke yesterday than today. Yeah. So we are now seeing the real manifestations of climate change, right? This is These, these fires are going on and on and on starting earlier because mm-hmm. things are drier and it's having international impacts because the skies in New York and on the East Coast, other parts of the United States, you got a lot of Americans who are upset at Canada. Why can't we put these fires out, Aaron? Oh, well, I, uh, not all fires apparently should be put out. So I was doing a little bit of reading up on this and they were talking about, you know, not fires are a natural thing, but over the course of the last few decades, there has been more and more. And there's so apparently there's half that are human started and half that are due to lightning and that sort of thing. But I think we really are seeing the effects of climate change when you have the fires. And then I know in Alberta and elsewhere, we're also having the floods that kind of immediately follow the fires. But I think one of the things that we could be doing possibly better is making use of intelligence. And this was an interesting insight that uh, a person from BC was talking about is how we we do have a lot of data. And some of this might be more or less not predictable, but we can we can see the conditions that create the fires that we're experiencing now. And if we could do a little bit more to uh, look at prevention rather than reaction, I'm sure that everybody has thought that over the course of the past couple of or month or so. But I think using what we know a little bit more strategically would help reduce the impact of these fires to a certain extent. It turns out that our forests are not carbon sinks, but carbon generators. Is that what's going on here now? The, the, that the fires have been so bad that they're, they've been one of the biggest contributors to, to carbon in the past several months? Yeah, and they generate their own weird weather systems as well. So it, it's due to a combination, apparently, of hot, dry weather, which and that causes, obviously, a lot of ignition potential in the forest. But the uh, the person that I was listening to earlier was talking about how, you know, we don't have to immediately put out every fire that ignites, but rather we could take a page out of the uh, indigenous management of forest fires and how, you know, there's a lot of indigenous intelligence, I suppose, that goes into knowing when to stop a fire and when to, you know, to let it go. Well, in this case, I'm not sure we have much of a choice. The fires are so big and so far away that there's not a whole lot we can do to stop them. They are, exactly. I know that in Alberta, a couple of days, I believe it was in early June, we had the worst air quality on the planet. And I know Montreal got that honor about June 26th. And then I think New York was not far behind, but it certainly is generating a ton of problems for those, for everybody, you know, even if you're not directly impacted by having to vacate, you know, for emergency removal, but this air quality is going to be a, a 
ongoing issue, I think. Yeah. And the challenge, of course, is that as bad as affects everybody, it affects people who have less resources. So people without air conditioning, people who already have are vulnerable. So exactly. we're, all, we're all living in these same awful skies, breathing this awful air. It tends to hurt the people who are already vulnerable more. And in the aftermath of, well, not the aftermath, in the mid-math of COVID, there's all kinds of people who have lung problems due to COVID. So this is just... Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, I think Environment Canada always does recommend things like staying indoors and keeping windows shut, which is fine if you have an indoor place to go with windows to keep shut, as well as an air purifier, all of that sort of thing. But mm. all of those methods really do assume that you have a level of income that will facilitate that. So you're right, these these kinds of things really do hit those who are already vulnerable in the worst way. Yeah, it really is part of the the reality that we're facing, which is all the models that about climate change, we're all widely optimistic, apparently. It turns out that everything's happening faster than we expected or catastrophically than we expected. Yeah. Uh, and we're not really seeing much movement on changing policies to, to, to address this. We're responding very slowly still because there are political interests that prefer the old way of doing things. There are good news things out there, but I don't know how quickly they'll come online. I saw a story today that I believe it was Lyman Toyota, a Japanese company, came out with uh, has has found a uh, transformational leap in, in batteries, so that way they can produce much more efficient batteries that can charge much faster. So, you know, if that comes online, that'll be helpful. But I'm I'm fearing this is all too late. Yeah, there is uh, some good news, I suppose, when uh, there has been a recent agreement between Canada and the U.S. to help each other fight wildfires. And, you know, in some ways they've been doing this anyway, so I'm not really sure what a formal agreement might do, but it does seem like it, it could be a step in the right direction by just, you know, having that agreement that they will provide resources to each other in the case of these of these catastrophes. Well, that's. Pretty pessimistic. I don't know where we can go from here on this. Speaking of fires, the French have a lot of fires, but that are, are caused by human beings. Not it's not natural. In response to the shooting of a of a young man by the police, you've been following this closely. You deal more with policing than I do. So, what's your take on what's going on in France? This seems a little bit more energized and and challenging for the government than the usual protests. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think I think the police are their behavior is probably serving to be a bit of a tipping point. Obviously, there's no excuse whatsoever to have murdered that 17 year old. But I think if you look at some of the happenings in the last few years in France, the yellow vest movement, the um, pension reform protests, there's a lot of discontent in France anyway. And so I think this is sort of uh, this event really did serve as a bit of a tipping point to create greater levels of unrest. So, you know, there's a lot of things going on in some of the the centers, periphery, center versus periphery kind of thing. There's a lot of youth unemployment up to 40% in certain areas among certain immigrant groups. So I think that there's a lot of issues that sort of have come to a bit of a, a head. And this is really one of those issues that has caused this this uh, deep discontent or not. It hasn't caused it, but it's sort of, uh, you know, triggered something a little bit more because there's but there's a lot of things going on in France right now. I think policing behavior is just one element of many at this point. The other reality of this is that apparently the police in France have not been properly trained, as many police forces are <laughs> not properly trained for domestic 
or maybe even other situations. But one of the things that I was reading said that they have actually just had online video training when it comes to this kind of crowd control and crowd management. So it's, you know, they, I think the police are very unprepared for, for the protests. Clearly there was some lack of preparation when it came to targeting that, that youth as well. So I just think France is uh, boiling over with issues at this point. Yeah, I do think that, but there is a commonality across the democracies about whatever crowd control techniques were sort of bred to deal with, I don't know, G20 meetings. They don't seem to work really well when the stakes are different and when it's when the topic is really police brutality. They tend to end up causing us to say, well, look, they're showing us who they really are. Mm-hmm. And they're proving their point for us. Yeah, the the whole idea when the, I find it strange that when the police do something clearly wrong, that you know the response is always sort of like doubling down in a way. But if, with the protests, so there's we see lots of pictures of you know the forty five thousand police officers you know marching in line but you know the optics of it are not great when they they were at fault to begin with and then this show of power is not very reassuring i think for most most people there yeah they're not very reassuring i do know from my daughter's experience as an activist in la that that the cops are deeply implicated in a lot of things Mm -hmm. and it's make it really hard to actually i mean the, the reason why people are being violent against the cops is because the cops have been violent against them and they don't they haven't found recourse through the representatives through the courts just this past week in san francisco the new attorney general or district attorney who was put into place to try to reverse the progress that had been made basically was letting a cop who had killed somebody uh you know wasn't pursuing the case mm-hmm. uh, and so what we're seeing in a lot of different places now the thing in france is that from what I've read, uh, lots of folks look at the United States and think it's unique in, in terms of the problem it has with racism. Mm-hmm. There's a, at least been a conversation and, a, and an effort made to address racism. Now, there's a lot of pushback these days from the right wing. Uh, a lot of this whole anti-woke stuff is about racists who are upset about being called racist. But in France, I, I don't think there was really as much of an effort to create uh, civil rights for those who are different races from the standard Parisian and that there hasn't been any sense of progress to made. And so that that means that that violence seems to be the way to go, which is not great. Mm -hmm. No, I think there's a lot of alienation amongst the immigrant groups, as well as it seems a lot of sort of segregation in daily life there. You know, the suburbs appear quite different than happening in some urban centers. But there's a I think you can hide a lot if economic conditions are sort of good. But I think when as soon as the economy goes or tanks, as it appears to have in France, then so many problems reveal themselves and policing is one of them as well. Well, we can't get too smug about how badly the French are handling it because these things have not been handled that well in in Canada or the United States. I mean, we're still frustrated by how this this Ottawa city has dealt with with the, the extremists who were occupying downtown last winter. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, when I was in a conference in Europe, one of the papers had references to that and was like talking about it in a way. It's like, actually, you know, it wasn't really about that. It was about these other things. And so I don't think the Europeans really understood what, what was going on in Ottawa uh, in February of 2022. No, I was trying to draw some parallels between what's happening in France and what happened in Ottawa and elsewhere. 
You know, I think the thing that complicated things in Ottawa, as I understand it, was this sort of inability to figure out whose jurisdiction it really was to address the situation in Ottawa. I don't think that there is that same thing perhaps going on in France. I think that it's pretty clear that the police are trying to assume jurisdiction, but the, the you know, the yellow, there's so many issues that are always embedded behind a protest. It's not necessarily, as you know, one thing that's sort of the cause and people gravitate towards protests in ways that are interesting. So, you know, the, the protests is, I, I think in France, they're, they were triggered by policing and they certainly have a lot to do with it, but I do think there's a lot of other stuff going on there like it was in Ottawa. Yeah, and the problem is that we probably are getting their thing wrong as much as they got our thing wrong. Exactly. So we'll move on to ruthlessly speaking about something else, which we might know a smidge more about because it's been on TV the whole all the past weeks, which is while we were away, there was some kerfuffle within the Russian military between mm-hmm. those who had been hired by the Russian military, by the Russian government to fight their war and the Russian government. So watching Prigozhin's mutiny, coup, spat, what were your reactions to what we saw between uh, the Wagner Group's leaders and the Wagner Group and Putin and the Russian government? Well, I guess I was pretty surprised at how there is, as you were saying, it seemed like a bit of a kerfuffle. But then as fast as we heard about it, it was over. And my understanding was that Prigozhin was exiled to Belarus. But even though Putin had been talking fairly tough about, you know, people who were trying to be confrontational and overthrow and all of that sort of thing, that they were going to be in, quote, big trouble. That's my quote, not anybody else's. And then all of a sudden, it's just done and he's gone. So there's a lot of mystery surrounding this. And I don't, of course, the information that we get from Russia is the information they want us to get. So it's difficult for for me to figure this situation out, given that this Prigozhin seems to have been, you know, a bit of a right right hand man for Putin. I'm not sure what to make of it exactly. I think it's probably not over. No, it's certainly not over. I mean, as someone who studies civil military relations, some of this resonated and some of it did not. So I had been, along with many other folks, expecting mutinies in the Russian military because when you set up your military to fail, when you don't provide them with medical care, when you don't provide them with food, when you give them lousy leadership, eventually yeah. the folks below will maybe push back and they were, at least they will refuse to fight. We saw that on the Western Front during World War One, uh, where the French, it's a large hunk of the French military stopped fighting in 1917. That was the kind of mutiny I had imagined. I had not imagined that the Wagner group would, you know, pick up its toys and march on Moscow. Mm-hmm. And it showed a variety of things. It showed that they really mishandled things. That is that the Wagner group had been alienated because there was an effort at this point in the war to fold all of the private military companies into the Russian military. But since the Russian military had been much less effective than the Wagner group, and the Wagner group people didn't want to be part of that. They didn't want to be poorly led. They didn't want to be poorly supported. And mm-hmm. it did seem as if there had been some, well, we, you know, we usually call uh, blue on blue attacks. Right. I guess we might be red on red attacks in the case of the Russians. But in either case, you saw the Wagner group uh, lose some soldiers to fire from the Russian military. That's right. That was kind of the the thing that caused this reaction, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's that's what sort of caused this. And it seemed like the story is that Prigozhin wasn't able to call up. Putin and tell Putin, hey, I don't want my people to be joined with the military, that Putin had been freezing them out. And so really what this was wasn't so much as a 
coup attempt as a desperate plea for attention mm-hmm. that his, since he couldn't phone or fax or DM Putin, he decided to take his troops and, and head towards Moscow just to, to get attention. And that worked. But I don't think he got the reaction that he was expecting because Putin basically called him out as a traitor. And that doesn't usually do anything good for the person who's been called a traitor yeah. by, by the Russian government. And I really didn't expect them then to make a deal so quickly because in my line of business of political science, unenforceable deals break down. And there's nothing that in these agreements that credibly committed either Prigozhin to to stat, you know to disperse his troops or for Putin to you know keep his promises of not harming Prigozhin and not harming his troops. Right. You know, usually I think of there's that whole um metaphor of or uh parable of the the frog and the spider, where the the uh, the, the scro- I'm sorry, the frog and the scorpion, where the scorpion asked the frog for a ride across the river, and the frog's like, "But you're a scorpion, you, you'll sting me," and the scorpion says, "No, nah, I won't do that because if I do that, we'll both die." And so the scor- frog goes, "Okay, I'll carry you across the river." Then halfway across the river, the scorpion stings the frog, and before they both sink and die, the frog goes, "Why'd you do that?" And the scorpion's like, "It was in my nature. I can help myself." And I was thinking when I was watching this agreement, I was like, it's two scorpions who are both trying to make a deal that neither one believes in. Mm -hmm. I really don't know whether Prigozhin has additional leverage to make sure that that Putin can't assassinate him. You know, the thing that people are focused on so much was, well, Prigozhin's gone to Belarus to the one high rise building that does not have windows that can be opened since people falling out of windows, but in a primary way in which. Yeah, there's a lot of windows there. There's a lot of falling out of windows. So so people are pointing out at that, but it's not clear what's going to happen to the Wagner group. It's not clear what's going to happen to Prigozhin. What this has shown is that Putin is not really a master of his entire domain. It seemed kind of panicky the way he responded to these things. They didn't really have the best ability to to you know reinforce the defenses of Moscow. You know, what what defended Moscow was a bunch of civilians, you know, pulling up the roads. But if Prigozhin wanted to continue on to Moscow, he could have. But then, you know, does he forgive Prigozhin after Prigozhin's forces knocked down several helicopters in a plane, killing a number of Russian soldiers and pilots? Yeah. It's a really difficult situation for him. And even he wraps it up by, you know, arresting Prigozhin or Prigozhin going to exile or whatever. It, it certainly told the Russian people, because a lot of this played out in Russian media in a way that a lot of other stuff does not. It showed the Russian people that the war is not going well. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm really curious about is what the Russian people are, are thinking about all of this. A couple of things I was reading was referring to the general apathy of Russian citizens to what's going on because of the sort of the feeling of powerlessness. And if if it's just a couple of players at the top that are having this, but I'd be curious to like, what's your take on what Russian citizens are thinking? I have no idea what they are thinking about this. This is this is hard to know. I mean, you know, the thing is that Putin's biggest promise since he came to power in the late 1990s was he was going to deal with the disarray and the chaos that Yeltsin had produced. Right. Well, we're looking at a lot of disarray and chaos. And what this reminds me of is that in the 1980s, one reason why communism collapsed so quickly in Yugoslavia and in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union was it had made one real promise to people, which was in, a, in communism, everybody has a job. Right. And then in the 1980s, you had a lot of unemployment. And so Susan Woodward wrote a book called Socialist Unemployment. And that should be an oxymoron. In a socialist system, you don't have unemployment. 
Mm-hmm. Well, he did. And that struck at one of the key elements of legitimacy of the communist governments of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. And so these days, you know, one of the key claims for Putin was that he would make sure there would be no disorder. And now he's a font of disorder, that he is helping to create disorder. This war has helped to create chaos in the marketplace, in Russia's role in the world, and the ability for Russians to travel beyond Russia in terms of the foodstuffs and other stuffs that are, aren't readily available because of the sanctions. And now you have elements of the Russian military fighting other elements of the Russian military. That does not seem to be the law and order, good governance kind of promises that Putin had been making. So it, it kind of reminds me of one of the Rocky movies where it's like, you know, the, the fighter fighting Rocky finally got cut. He finally was bleeding a little bit and showed that he wasn't invulnerable. Mm-hmm. Putin has now been cut. Prigozhin might not have been able to bring him down, but a lot of this stuff is about perceptions. And if people think that Putin is vulnerable, that he is vulnerable, that, that it changes people's willingness to push back against him. In terms of the war itself, the Wagner group had been mostly been off of the front lines because they were they were they're more of an offensive force on a defensive force for the Russians. And so given the, the Ukrainian counter offensive, the Wagner group wasn't really on the front line. So their being involved in this didn't really create lots of vulnerability for the Russian military. Mm-hmm. But still, if you have 20,000, 30,000, how many over soldiers they got who aren't currently fighting and current aren't currently part of a reserve to be tossed in in case the, the Ukrainians make a breakthrough, it does create weakness and, and does create opportunity. may not be as much as we were thinking the first few days of this thing because we thought, wow, they're on the front lines, but they, they weren't on the front lines. So it's What's not as much of a sea change on the, on the battlefield. Yeah. What is your sense of how big this Wagner group is? And is there is it like um, cells of people, you know, different groups at different places? Or like, this is a, a bit of a mystery to me is how big they are and where they are. Well, they're big. I mean, it was, you know, I, I, I the numbers I was seeing was 30,000 or 40,000 or so. And they are located not just in Ukraine, but they were also part of Russia's efforts to interfere in other parts of the world. So the mm-hmm. Wagner group was active in Syria. They were active in Mali. They're active in a number of places where they were the principal means by which the Russian government was involved in places. And so it's not clear what they're doing now in these places. Are they still fighting on behalf of the Russians and the Syrians against the opponents of the Assad regime in, in Syria? I'm not so sure. I think they're probably spending, you know, the Wagner group, if I was in the Wagner group, I'd be spending most of my time watching my back because yeah, I, I, I do think that that they're the greatest threat they face now is from the Russian government. So it may not make as much of a big a difference on the battlefield right now because of where the, the Wagner group troops were located. But I do think it's going to make a big impact on, on Russia's foreign relations because Wagner Group was their principal means and now they don't have that anymore. And it's also, like I was saying, with how people viewed Putin domestically, it's also the fact how Russia's viewed internationally, that it's a, it's a regime that faces internal crises as well as not performing well in this war. Mm-hmm. And so countries outside who've been either sitting on the fence or have been balancing towards the Russians are now going to have to rethink because one of the things that happens in a coup is everybody likes to go with the winner. And yeah, so it's all about who, who who gets to convey who's the inevitable winner of, of those things. Well, in the international relations of this stuff, if the Russians start to be seen to be a bad bet as an ally because they're all messed up internally, mm-hmm. that's going to affect what people do. You know, the Iranians will still work with them. The Chinese will still work with them, but they're going to be uh, you know hedging their bets. They're going to be trying to figure out ways to work around the Russians. They're going to have a lot less confidence in Putin. Yeah. Reminds me of our past conversations about what makes a good ally. You know, I guess internal stability might be one of those things that can contribute to being a good ally. Yeah. Well, that's one reason why the United States has been 
a problem lately because the whole you know shift Republican Party go sliding to the right and uh, the Trumpness of it all has made the United States to be a less reliable ally. I can certainly see that whoever has been looking to Russia as an alternative to the Americans now have to think about what are the ports do they have in the storm because the Russians aren't very reliable. No, that's for sure. But that leads us to the uh, last topic I want to briefly address, which is the NATO summit is next week in Vilnius. And the joy of summitry is that's the time to make announcements about past decisions, the decisions that have been made. And we are both currently waiting with bated breath for the defense policy update, which was supposed to come out before the summit, because it's about keeping the promises that Trudeau has made. Our last podcast, I was on with J.C. Boucher. We were in Latvia at the time on a trip that had been organized by the Department of the public affairs directorate of the Department of National Defense. And one of the things we consistently heard in Latvia from Latvians, from Canadians, from others, is that Trudeau made a series of promises about what would be going on from the Canadian contribution to the effort there, and they haven't really met them yet. And since then, Anita Nan went to, I believe it was Brussels for the NATO defense ministerial meeting. Right. And she, she cashed in on some of the promises, which is she announced that they were relocating something like 16 tanks and dozens of support vehicles and all the personnel from Canada to Latvia. So that way, the the battle group that Canada is currently leading will have a Canadian squadron of tanks to give it an additional armored capability. There are other countries that had tanks there as well. But as we move from having a battle group to a, a brigade, moving from 1,000 troops overall to 3,000 troops overall, and moving from either 400, 500, or 800 Canadian troops to 1,800, this is part of that process of keeping those promises. So she announced that. I'm assuming there are other announcements to be made in the next few days because the summit again is next week, and they want to roll out the defense review beforehand. Mm-hmm. But they're running out of time. Yeah, it's anytime would be a good time, wouldn't it, to let everybody know what's going on. I guess the the tanks, is this sort of like trading one, you know, like paying off or developing some sort of payment in one area, like tanks instead of the proportion of funds, the 2%? Is this like just an attempt to ensure that there is some kind of contribution or a, a different type of contribution rather than the 2% that everybody talks so much about, like just shift, you know, shifting on a chessboard sort of? Well, I think that we often think about some of these things as well, we're doing this rather than spending money, but exactly, hey, yeah. this requires us to spend money. Mm-hmm. Maybe it won't get us to 2%, but moving tanks to Europe will cost us money. Basing more people in Europe will cost us money. But the whole 2% thing is about helping NATO do stuff. Yeah. And by putting troops, by additional troops into Latvia, we're improving the defenses of Latvia. The 2% thing can can often be a distraction because if you spend lots of money in military, but they don't go anywhere, are you really helping out NATO? Right. Whatever the Greeks are spending on their military is not really helping out NATO because they're mostly pointing at Turkey. You know, the question is, are the, the Latvians are nervous because the Russians have proved to be reckless and they want to have a better ability to defend themselves because they think the Russians may not attack tomorrow or next week, but, you know, in five or 10 years, they think the Russians will attack. And so they want to have more capability, not in Germany or in Britain or in Canada, but they want it there for when the war starts because you need it, it. It would be hard to get this equipment into there once the war starts. And so the idea is to deter the Russians to have the equipment there at the start of any war so that way the war doesn't happen. I think it's a real commitment, but it's not enough. And so the question is, what's going to get announced this week when we get us closer to something that is what our promises have been made? We we promised 18,000, 1,800 troops. Mm-hmm. 150 or 200 gets us a little closer, but doesn't get us all the way. So this, we're waiting on the defense policy review. Is that the case? Yeah, it's supposed to come out this week or, so, or next week before the summit. Summit's basically Tuesday and Wednesday. So I would think it would come out. Down but that was announced. 
last year, wasn't it? The, that there was going to be the policy review that was announced. Yes. So it's late. What is your suspicion as to why it's so late? That's a really good question. I think part of it is that this is the Defense Department has been very busy with the actual supporting of the Ukrainians. So that's taking a lot of time. They've been very busy in the culture change effort. Mm -hmm. uh, so they've been very busy in a lot of things. I'm not exact. I think maybe the, the the department, the minister's office lacks the capacity to be juggling a lot of things at once. I've been pushing for some time to actually have not, you know, these updates whenever, but to have a, have them every four years. So that way you have a machinery and process that is always reviewing the last review and, and, and starting the next review. So that way you have people who are experts in putting this stuff together. So that way they show up on time and they show up on a regular basis. So that way we all know the status of things. Hmm. It seems like it should be a fairly easy process to get this out on. Not easy, but if it's expected on a regular basis, there should be some sort of system in place. It seems just a, a very long delay. Well, these things also may cause people to have to make decisions, and maybe the delays are trying to get the various sides within the DMV, within the cabinet, to agree to spend more money, to agree to spend on this, not that. Mm -hmm. We won't really know until we see the review about which actors within D&D won and lost these battles, but that might be something that's delaying it, is that there might be bureaucratic fights over over what the priorities are and where the money goes. I would think the money needs to go to NORAD modernization because that's been a big promise the government's been made, and it needs to go to Latvia because that's another big promise the government's made, but we'll see. But we'll have to leave that there because I'm running out of time. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, Aaron. Our interview today is with Kathy Blue, who was our visiting defense fellow at at Carleton for the past year. Uh, she is a colonel in the Air Force and has been doing research with us, her own research, and has also been helping us run our events and give us critical feedback about how to do things. So that's the thing we're doing next. Aaron, I wish you a delightful summer. Hopefully you'll be able to get out and play in the mountains and do all those things that Calgarians do, like chase after big cows. Yes. Well, we'll get Stampede over with, and then we'll be, have time for the mountains and all that good stuff. Excellent. Be well, and to the listeners, enjoy your summer. Hopefully you can get some time out in the sun and, and enjoy all that stuff. Take care. Yes. Today on the podcast, we have Colonel Kathy Blue from the Royal Canadian Air Force. She has been a visiting defense fellow at Carleton University since last summer. She has spent the year with us and has survived the experience. And we thought we'd have her on the podcast today to tell us a little bit about herself, about the VDF program, what she has learned along the way, what she's going to take forward to her next gig, which she can't tell us about because it's covered in secret sauce. So, Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Steve. It's been a real pleasure having you with us the past year. You've been very much engaged in a lot of our planning and various efforts. And I guess the the first thing we want to know, I know, but the audience doesn't know, is tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, why did you choose to join the RCAF? Why have you managed to stick around despite all the troubles and tribulations the, the military's had over the past while? And then we could get into some other stuff. Well, I've, uh, I joined the RCAF. 30 some years ago, initially joining because I really needed a support to achieve my university degree. And I had been working with an organization that's Royal Canadian Air Cadets. Uh, so I was familiar with the military and uh, I applied. And, you know, like most kids out of, out of high school, I applied. I had the opportunity to remain at a civilian university and graduate from there. Very proud graduate of the University of Prince Edward Island. And uh, embarked on what I thought was going to be, you know, a, maybe a nine-year 
career in the Canadian Armed Forces as a communications electronics engineer. However, I, I found myself really enjoying my work, enjoying working with people, representing Canada, and suddenly my nine-year career was a 20-year career, and then it was a 25-year career, and then so on. And I think the key for me is the opportunity to represent Canada, the opportunity to uh, contribute to uh, the safety and security of Canadians, and the opportunity to be a leader in the Canadian Armed Forces. I've been humbled and proud to be commanding officer of a number of units in the Canadian Armed Forces, uh, RCAF units, and, and through that uh, have worked with some absolutely outstanding people who are from every walk of life and uh, contributing to the Canadian Armed Forces and the Department of National Defense across a, a huge myriad of, uh, of occupations and different tasks or skill sets. And that, that was really, you know, keeps you going every day and keeps you wanting to contribute. Now we've had challenges, of course, in the Canadian Forces throughout my entire career. We've, you know, we've had, had different moments of change and evolution driven by misconduct that's come to light. And that's really allowed us to evolve, maybe not as far as we needed to evolve. But I think every time I go, uh, we approach those those crisis moments and we come through those, I see the Canadian Armed Forces evolving every time. And I think that's what's caused me to, or kept me, rather than caused me, but kept me here in the Canadian Forces and really the belief that we are the organization that will change itself for the better and to meet the needs of Canada at the same time being a, a professional military and uh, respected around the world. So besides your tour at Carleton, which obviously is going to be the highlight of your military career, what would be the second most interesting favorite assignment over the course of your 30 plus years? I will actually give you two answers. I will tell you that uh, having the opportunity to command a unit had two of those uh, opportunities. Those are highlights of my career as a leader uh, in the Canadian Armed Forces, and then having the opportunity to be the special advisor to Lieutenant General Kenya, working on professional conduct and culture within the Canadian Armed Forces, that would be the other highlight that I would make. So uh, leadership opportunity highlights, and then job opportunity highlights, certainly. Well, and, and you were at CPCC. You were there at the sort of present at the creation that the, that you were there at a time where the military is under a lot of criticism. They stood up this new organization, which has a funky name to it. So what did you learn less about the stuff that you were doing in terms of it was about professional conduct and culture or professional culture and conduct and more just about what's it like to set up a new organization? I think it's a very, it's a complex thing to do in the Canadian Armed Forces as it is anywhere. Setting up a new organization uh, in government is a is a, a complex endeavor we are working to make sure you have the right resources the right human resources the right logistics resources to do the jobs that you've been charged to do and then i think as cpcc was becoming responsible for a number of different entities we were bringing those entities into the organization so there's there's movement of of personnel and responsibilities that has to happen to create that organization that is responsible for professional conduct and culture. And all of those pieces are complex. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of resource work to be done. There's a lot of discussions around lines of tasks. So just those tasks that you have to get done every day, understanding what those are and making sure that those continue as you're building a new organization. So it's a complex, uh, complex time. 
but uh, an, an evolving time as you, you know, maybe the picture that you had when you came through the door of where it would be in three months, you, you evolve that to where it's going to be in six months, and then you evolve that to where it's going to be in a year and until you get to that steady state. So it's a constant uh, development from day one. And so you went from that environment to the university environment, which now you're entering it from a very different perspective than you were when you started out long ago. So before we get into the VDF program, just what was it like for you to be hanging out with a bunch of shaggy academics who lack any sense of discipline and all that kind of thing? How was that this year hanging out with us? It's not the first time I've had the opportunity to hang out with shaggy academics. So one of my previous posts, I was uh, post the Canadian Forces College in Toronto, responsible for the national security program. And I spent quite a bit of time in that role working with the academics supporting the Canadian Forces College. So I had had some experience before I got there, just about uh, timings and who's going to be where and, you know, what coffee means and language is important. I think the biggest thing for me to remember or, uh, you know, remember when I went through the door is don't talk about your job in the form of an acronym because we describe everything in the Canadian Armed Forces in the form of an acronym. So I had to remember that, like not everybody's got that acronym business down pat. But I also had to, I was a little nervous. You know, what are they going to think of me coming from the Canadian Armed Forces? Not everybody has a member of the Canadian Armed Forces in their family or, or somebody that they've worked with every day. So I think I was a little bit nervous about that. You know, what are they going to think of me as a professional military officer, uh, not as an academic? I think that remembering how to use my language skills appropriately and not uh, not speak in acronyms. And then, you know, just be myself and represent uh, what I do well. And I think that's probably one of my two things that I was found maybe not challenging, but those were the the, the things I wanted to concentrate on first. Yeah, well, you fit in pretty quickly and you were not such an alien caused us to constantly wondering what who is this person and why are they dropping <laughs> to our midst? And, and it's not like, you know, you were tidying up after all of us to make sure that we everything was square and, you know, that we were all no, staying straight. No, no hospital corners. Yes. Although I do make hospital corners when I make a bed, but that's because I was conditioned as a camper long ago. <laughs> so what is the VDF program for the lay person and what, what were you supposed to get out of it? And what did you get out of it in relation to its objectives? So the Visiting Defense Fellow Program is something that the Canadian Armed Forces has had available for some some time. We have concentrated having a Visiting Defense Fellow who is at what we call a developmental period four. So our careers are divided up into developmental periods based, based on rank and experience. So we have designed the Visiting Defense Fellow Program to work at the DP4 level, which is development, which is where I am. I'm a colonel and uh, I'm concentrating on some professional development in that time and space uh, of being a colonel. So that's where the Visiting Defense Fellow sits. We previously had fellows at Queen's University at the DP4 rank level. So they've been there to, uh, to study, uh, do some research, work with Queen's University and their international affairs program to develop the opportunity to develop in the officer a broader understanding of international affairs, a broader understanding of what is happening in academia to, in that area. We wanted to expand that program to Carleton University, and I had the opportunity to do that. As part of the Visiting Defense Fellow Program, I have a research uh, area that I'm looking into, 
I have a number of courses that I audit, providing a kind of a professional military voice in those courses. And then on top of that, I do some work with the Canadian Forces College National Security Program throughout the academic year to create networks with the Canadian Forces College as well. So the whole purpose of the BDF program is to really allow us to have that opportunity to work with academia, to see where our, and I, I should have mentioned that we're really concentrated on the international affairs programs at, at the universities or in those centers. I'm not sure if I'm using the right vernacular, Steve, if it yes, yes. should be safe centers good. or programs. It, it depends um, on that some places are centers, some places are programs. <laughs> and some places are schools, I'm sure. So to have that opportunity to work with them, to learn from them, but also to to kind of provide our experience into those programs. Had the opportunity to work with master students, talk to them, give, give them my professional opinion in a number of different settings, whether it was war and technology, uh, contemporary security, civil military relations. And that could vary, that was my experience, but that could vary with any of the, the BDFs and where their areas of focus are. So what class of the four, you just mentioned the four classes that you took, and two of them were with me. So of course, you can say whatever you want about me. My my grades are in, although you weren't actually graded. So you can say whatever you want, but you had four different classes. Which one made you sort of go, hmm, and sort of changed your conceptions? Which one sort of broadened your horizons the most or caused you to rethink your assumptions? Or did none of them do that? None of, none of these classes broaden your perspectives and you really could have spent the, the the entire year hanging out with your fellow uniformed, short-haired people in, in Toronto. Well, we're not, we could not necessarily all wear short-haired anymore. I understand that. Like that. So I think, I think broadly, I took something from every interaction that I had. First, I'll talk about the students a little bit. Really impressed with with the, the students are in the NIPSIA program that I had the chance to interact with. Of course, these are these not all of them, but some of them will be our future public servants, uh, working in the areas of policy and international affairs. And uh, I'm very excited for that because I think there's some great uh, great talent in there. I think I, as I said, I took something from all of the all of the courses I had the opportunity to interact with. I think in some cases I laid some theory learn kind of the theory behind some of the uh, professional experiences I've had in my life. I'll talk about war and technology, for example. You know, I work in a technology-heavy occupation in the Canadian Armed Forces as a communications electronics engineer. And I, you know, we do the practice of that. We, we, we work in that milieu, but what's the theory behind how technology develops? I thought that was found a very, uh, a very interesting piece, very informative. Of course, I had the opportunity to work with you in uh, civil military relations. And it's something that uh, I, I really broadened my horizon to, to look at it deeper. I have looked at civil military relations from the military side, from our look at ourselves in that relationship. But it was very interesting to have the opportunity to do that and then follow that up with your class, looking at it from a different lens. And I think that's probably one of the important parts that comes into the BDF program is the opportunity to look through it through a different lens, look mm -hmm. at those uh, international relations, look at civil military relations, whatever we happen to be studying through a different lens, not through you know our own academic institution, but from a different academic institution's lens. And I think that's very important to make sure that we have that broad opportunity to uh, expand, or sorry, let me say an opportunity to expand our broad experience. 
in the uh, Canadian academic sphere. Well, and the paper that you're writing, because one of the requirements of the program back at CFC is is to write up uh, an extensive research paper, and you're still writing that research paper for our, you know, as part of that program, even though you're here. So tell us a little bit about the project, why you chose that project, and your progress thus far, if I dare ask. So we have the opportunity to choose how we would like to, what area we'd like to research in that kind of security uh, policy international affairs movement. I chose to look at oversight of the Canadian mm -hmm. Forces and more specifically Inspector General and, and the concept of an Inspector General for the Canadian Armed Forces. I settled on that because I, as I said, I'd been working as the SA um, to uh, CPCC, to Lieutenant General Pernier, during the Arbor, as the Arbor report was being uh, delivered. And I was, I found it quite fascinating that in the Arbor report, she went at uh, at some some length in the in the report about uh, an inspector general and the the reasons why we don't need to have one now an inspector general has been something that's been called for for the Canadian forces for many years starting with the Somali inquiry in the 90s and I think that's an area that we have have not necessarily looked at creating that avenue for oversight of the professional military organization that we are I think that's interesting from the point of view that other professional organizations have, maybe it's not called an inspector general, but have that oversight, have that opportunity to have that professional oversight that provides that feedback to the organization to, to tell them where they are going astray or where they need to strengthen. And I, I found that a fascinating and delved into it. I probably delved into too much of the history of that. So I'm not finished my uh, writing yet. And I'm, I'm hoping that my academic advisor that we're working with, Steve, will support me as I uh, continue to try to wrap this into, uh, wrap my research into words for publication uh, a little later down the road. Excellent. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I think the topic is important. My own bias is I think this was a missed opportunity. And so I'm curious as to as to why it was missed and and what an inspector general could do differently from an ombudsman, from other actors in the scene. I do know that there's a temptation to think that the more oversight actors you have, the less accountability you have because you don't really have one central person to be the sticky or stucky on it to to talk about things. But I think the alternatives all are problematic. And so we need to think a little bit about having something else in this environment. But uh, Kathy already knows my bias and all of this, so I'm not directing her to a particular conclusion based on what I care about. Uh, she will take the study where it needs to go for her. I never tell students what to conclude, not even colonels who are visiting us for a year. <laughs> well, I think, you know, in, in the process of this research, I've, I've had the opportunity to look at what's happening in other countries, a little bit of what's happening internally to Canada. And the Canadian Armed Forces does have a number of oversight bodies or mechanisms, perhaps not focused on the professional aspects of the Canadian Armed Forces or not always on that, that vein there. They're pulled in from different from time to time to look at it, but not somebody that's really looking at it on, on an ongoing basis, a bit like you might look, have, for example, you know, the professional engineers in the legal world where they have uh, professional bodies that have oversight. So I think there's that's the question that I'm getting into. Excellent. Well, 
I guess the, the last thing I'm curious about is that you've been a real asset to the CDSA and you've helped us organize our events and our activities, giving us a good perspective of what the folks inside the various buildings in town are thinking about. I'm curious as to which of the things that you've been involved with, with the CDSA in the past year was the most interesting to you, which one got you the most jazzed or, or whatever. And this time you have to pick. I think the, I think the Summer Institute, I think that provided me the opportunity to change gears. You know, the Summer Institute was the first activity I really did as a visiting defense fellow with the CDSM. Mm. And that provided me the opportunity to kind of move my frame of reference from my, or start to move my frame of reference away from my kind of the professional day-to-day at the office in the business of security and defense to the academic side, to thinking about kind of the study of security and defense, not just as a practitioner doing it day to day, but really the study of and the academic work that is going on in that milieu. And it kind of gave me that opportunity to kind of switch gears. And I think that that was probably my highlight. Enjoyed all the experiences I had with CBSM, but I would say that that's probably, uh, that's probably the highlight. Excellent. Well, it's, it's certainly one of the highlights of my year as well. I really enjoy meeting that next generation of folks in, in the defense and security community, seeing sort of the stuff through their eyes and also being able to sit in and listen to what they're, they're receiving. So any last thoughts of, of uh, life as a VDF before you go on to that next gig that we cannot speak of? While I can't speak of my next gig, I can say that uh, I think my year spent as the VDF and work, working with at Carleton University and working with students at Carleton University and NIPSIA, as well as the CDSM network. I should mention that not everybody is at NIPSIA or Carleton. And some of the folks I had the opportunity to work with were across the country. I think that it will set me up uh, well, providing me some tools in my toolbox, as we like to say, as I step into my next uh, my next gig, where I might have more opportunity to be engaged with uh, students and academics. Well, I will look forward to bring you back from your next gig so you can give us a perspective of what you learned about that place and what you're doing there. You're not, you know, in Canada, the network is national, so you can't escape us. And so we look forward to seeing you again. And since your your family's still going to be here, we're assuming you're going to be joining us for the various shindigs that we offer when you have the time for them. So we look forward to hanging out with you beyond your one year as a VDF. And we wish you luck in your next thing, Colonel Kathy Blue. Thank you, Steve. The one thing I probably would have added is that, you know, I intend to remain connected to the CDSN, and that is part of the VDF program is to, to main, maintain your connection with the networks that you have the opportunity to work on. Excellent. So I look forward to that. Well, enjoy all the fun stuff that comes with transitioning to the next gig. What I say about our students, you can say about your, your occupation, which is if you get tired of the current batch of students, there'll be another one, you know, six months later, or three months later, whatever it is. And with you get tired of your current gig, well, you know, it'll be done and you'll be on to the next thing. Constant change is, is interesting, even if it can be stressful to make those transitions. Absolutely. Thanks, Steve. All right. Take care.